Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest is a driver who has had an eclectic and very successful career in single-seater sports cars and touring cars, beating the odd Formula One world champion along the way, and who is still going strong behind the wheel, dare I say it, in his 60s. I'm your host, Ed Straw, my special guest, Anthony Reid, is a, a difficult driver to sum up in, in few words, given the career he's had. So I did have a look at your website, and I think it describes you as professional racing driver, stunt driver, and British land speed record holder. What British land speed record do you hold? The... Um when you talk about land speed records, people think about, you know, the flying mile. Well, if you're a bit of an ANRAC and, and go through the MSA handbook, there are a load of records which um, obviously start with the mile record all the way through until 24 hours. At the end of the 2000 season, when I've been racing with Ricard Rydell and uh, Alan Menu for ProDrive and Ford, Volvo was still part of the, the, the Ford group. And... Um, Dave Richards had been asked by Ford to try and break British land speed records in a Volvo S60. I mean, clearly with that car, we weren't going to break the one-mile record or the one-kilometre record. That would but, take quite some up racing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there was a whole host of records that hadn't been broken for about uh, 16 years or so. So ProDrive put together a special S60, I mean, it, 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 standard road car, but stripped out um, big fuel tank. And they entered myself uh, and a load of journalists, John Cleland, um, Ricard, Alan Menu, um, in two cars. And there must have been about 12 drivers. Uh, and we went to, I think it was Millbrook, you know, with the Oval. And we set up about trying to break all these records, which we successfully did. 
um, I was in the, the sort of sprint car uh, and broke all the early records up to two hours. So, you know, five miles, five kilometers and so on, all the way up to, to one hour, the 30-minute record. Uh, and then the car broke down. So nobody else up until that point had driven that fast car. So I had those records to myself. Then I, I jumped ship into the other car, which was a little way behind us, and broke all the other records with all the other drivers uh, all the way through to 24 hours. That's brilliant. I've never, yeah. I've never heard about that. That's, uh, do you still hold a lot of them? A number of them. But actually, um, Dennis Welch entered a Healy 3000 and broke all the records subsequently up to six hours. Uh, but he didn't attempt to go further than that. But I still own a significant number of, of those records all the way through to, to, to 24 hours, shared with other drivers and journalists. There we go. That's another layer to an eclectic uh, career. Now, my other guest is uh, Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner. You've used Anthony's professional services recently as an autosport driver. So was it the stunt driver status that, uh, that convinced you that he was the... He was the man for also. <laughs> um, no, sadly, sadly not. No, it's. Um, I mean, Anthony's uh, one of the great things about him. He's so enthusiastic and and willing to drive lots of different types of of car. Whether it's a you know a, a club. You know, we had him in a Peugeot two hundred five classic stock hatch last year, didn't we, Anthony? And um, um, we obviously I, we I started my. I call it racing career in this company. That sounds ridiculous. My uh, very low level amateur racing career in stock hatch. So. Actually, I did. A, I was doing some a bit of a tangent. I was doing some research last night um, because that's yeah do that sort of sad things and I came across a stock hatch feature by you in about 2007 I can't even remember so there you go well, no. <laughs> but yeah so um, I mean Ben Anderson's obviously our sort of in-house track tester racer but Anthony um, is sort of the, the the outsider if you like that does a lot of running for us and actually uh, it was really nice that you got to share a car with Ben the Austin A30 at Browns Hatch in the HRDC meeting that went pretty well Anthony that was great fun um, and, and having Alex Kinsman as, as the le patron and the boss of the team. And, of course, he's the uh, brother of Wilkinsman, who's the competition secretary at uh, Goodwood. So it's all very much in-house. But, I mean, that was a tremendous feature, I've got to say. I mean, short of being on the front page of Autosport, to get four pages <laughs> in the middle of Autosport colour and everything, and a great, uh, well-written article by Ben was... Uh, well, and, and successful, because you came, yep. came away with two class wins. Then. Well, that's ben, right. ben won his class in the sprint race, and then you, you teamed up to, to win the class in the main race. I think eighth overall in about one of the slowest cars in the field. So it was quite a feel-good weekend. I think Ben was quite stressed after the first race, because he had to avoid two stalled cars off the line. He went into the Paddock Hill gravel trap, where his oil went down, and he had quite a bit of drama. But I think you had a smoother run in the, uh, in the longer race. Yeah, um, no, no. Ben, Ben is really quick, um, and you know he's got great range. He can drive lots of different types of cars. Former three. This must be one of the slowest cars he's ever driven, um, the Austin A35. But he, he, you know, he kept me very honest. Well, I think we more or less matched ourselves in qualifying. I just, on the last lap, managed to go a few hundredths quicker. Um, I think he was both disappointed and pleased at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't actually make any difference to our group, group position a few hundredths of a second. But, uh, yeah, fantastic fun and great weather, too. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of other opportunities in the future to do some, some driving for all taste. Well, but, as I said, you've had a very varied, long-lasting career. And so I guess what you're most famous for is your super touring here in the, in the 90s, sort of, I think, in Japan, a little bit in Germany, and then British Touring Car Championship. Is that the part of your career that you kind of think it was, was, the, was the high point? It's probably what you're best known for, certainly among the British public, given the, the profile. 
I mean, it's only when you look back that you realise the significance of that period. I mean, uh, there weren't that many television programmes compared to now. And we were on BBC One Grandstand in 97, you know, with Murray Walker commentating um, uh, all the big names. Uh, certainly in 98, we, we had Steve Ryder presenting. You had the, the established um, touring car drivers, Alan Menu, uh, Ricard Rydell, um, and John Cleland, but also mixed in with that were a, you know, a number of really significant Formula One drivers: Nigel Mansell, of course, Derek Warwick, Gabriele Tarquini, Morbidelli. So it was, um, and you know, at that in that particular period, uh, you know, there were many more professional drivers being paid to race in touring cars than there were perhaps in Formula One. So it's it, you know eight or nine factory teams all very good drivers, really competitive. Um, it was more pure, the racing. It wasn't so contrived as it is now, where you've got uh, a lot of common components across the field, uh, reverse grids, success ballast, all that sort of thing. I mean, it was uh, like, much more like Formula One with mudguards and uh, high technology and all the rest of it. Well, you probably got to drive the, the peak super touring with ProDrive Ford um, at the end of, of that era. Yeah, no, I believe the, 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 the budget for a season was uh, around the t- £12 million mark. I seem to remember the salaries were quite good too. I was going to say that was a long driver's salaries, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Kevin, you've obviously given uh, Anthony a significant accolade. Well, yeah, we, we did a 60th anniversary of the British Touring Cars. And we picked out, I picked out three drivers, I think, that, that didn't win the championship that, that should have done, if you like, the sort of the three best non-champions, effectively the Sterling Moss of British Touring Cars, if, uh, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Um, uh, one was Steve Saber, who actually did, of course, win it, and they had it taken away from him in the Rover. Um, uh, one was Gordon Spice, who won... Well, he was the Capri guy in the late 70s, early 80s, but he kept getting beaten by the idiosyncratic point system where people in lower classes uh, could score more points. Um, and Anthony, who obviously was you were runner-up twice right at the peak of Super Touring, once with the Nissan where obviously you won most races but had a bit of unreliability, and then with the Ford when you were reliable but didn't quite get enough wins and points. So, so yeah, I thought they were the, you know, one of the three standouts. So do you, that was uh, quite an accolade, so thanks very much for... <laughs> no problem, but does for, it... For putting... Uh, do you have a... Do you, do you look back and think, ah, it was annoying you didn't win it? Or do you think the fact you didn't win it and you're one of those names in the mix that it sort of almost doesn't matter now looking back? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you always kind of re- regret in a, a certain way that um, when you when I didn't win the British Touring Car Championship, uh, I happened to drive for two of the best teams during that period, uh, which was fantastic and a real privilege. Um, I could have stayed with Nissan one more year, but I did know that they were going to pull out uh, um, I was made an offer by Ford, which was difficult to turn down, you know, guaranteed two years of, of racing. Um, I suppose because I went from Nissan just on my own, whereas uh, Alan uh, went uh, from Williams, Renault, and he took a significant number of engineers and mechanics with him and was able to build a team more around him. Um, the car never suited me like it did with the Nissan. I mean, the Nissan, you know, working with uh, Nissan Motorsport Europe, um, um, Alec Poole, um, uh, Hioki, um, some of the great guys there, um, Richard de Villa, I was actually able to build the car around my own DNA. I, you know, I could develop, I, I was able to develop that car so that it really suited my driving. 
So in the 98 season, uh, I came very close to winning and certainly got more pole positions and won more races than anyone else during that season. Because uh, the following year would have been the year to stay. And I've subsequently driven Ayala's car, albeit on the hill at Goodwood. But it is a fantastic bit of kit, so beautifully balanced, easy to trim. You've got some understeer. You just um, adjust the balance with the rear camber. And um, so that, that would have been my big chance. But I thought, you know, with Ford and ProDrive and the budget and the commitment and the professionalism of that outfit that I'd certainly give myself a really good chance in the second year, in 2000. Albeit I fell two points short at the end of the season. That's how close it was, and it was nip and tuck all the way through. It's quite, it's quite an interesting uh, what-if question, actually. you think you could have beaten Aiello in 99, had you had you stayed on? Because that's that's held up as a, as a great season. Yeah. By the, having a, um, a great season. Well, well, didn't Aiello take your seat, didn't he? Wouldn't you? Yes. Been, you'd have been up against David David Leslie. I think, David Leslie. In, instead, I would which have been you'd already beaten the previous. Ah, yeah, yeah. I'd scored significantly more points, and I, you know, I finished second. I think David finished mm. six so, so in, in ninety-eight. So, if uh, I wasn't there, yes, I forgot the sequence. Well, there we go. If, there we go. If my aunt had testicles, she'd have been <laughs> my uncle. <laughs> I mean, I, I look back and I think, but uh, the fourth thing was so significant in terms of you know, uh, just the whole package. Plus the salary, uh, and I, I knew that Nissan would probably never pay my pension, uh, um, but f- you know the Ford contract really uh, set me up, you know, for the for the future. Uh, so uh, it it was ju- it was just a fantastic project to be involved with, you know, at, at the highest possible level. Uh, they were the fastest cars that uh, I drove in Super Touring, but not the best balanced in terms of my own personal taste. And actually, when you get uh, current engineers look at some of those super touring cars, because they've been out in, in historic racing, although that seems a bit ridiculous to call cars in the 1990s historic, but anyway, um, and some of the sort of current engineers look at them and go, these things are still, you know, they're so exotic and sophisticated. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of F1 touring cars, effectively. Um, and you can see why budgets got to 10, 12 million a year and why it couldn't really continue, I suppose, but it was great while it lasted. The V6 engine um, in the Ford um, was reputed to be as expensive as an F1 engine at that time because they had to totally deconstruct it and then put it back together. And it was so compact and small, powerful in terms of being a two-litre engine uh, limited to 8,500 revs but produced like 330 horsepower. Um, it was so compact they had to run the drive shaft from the gearbox between the V-bank in, in, in the engine block to get it to the other side, you know, to drive the off the the, the left-hand front wheel. And it was it was so far back; it was almost mid-engine as well, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The um, weight distribution you could run because we could move mass around the car because they were built so light and underweight. You could move mass around so that you could have literally, um, I think, around fifty-four percent just on the front wheels, no more than that, compared to. to today's cars which are going to be around 62 percent weight on the front wheels because the engine has to be mounted in front of the gearbox you stayed around in, in the british touring car championship after that the the btc spec era in the, in the mgzs did that compare in any way to the super touring era much much reduced spend and more more productiony cars but yeah was it was it the same it was a little bit of an anti-climax i have to say if i'm being honest um the uh first of all we were shuffled off until 
into ITV4 for the races on television on a Sunday. Um, budgets obviously much more reduced. The cars were like almost standard road cars. Very little modification. The engine had to be in front of the front axle. One of the highlights I can take from that year was I'm, I'm the only driver to have won uh, a round of British touring cars in a, a car that was constructed by Lola, the MGZT, which Martin Brain always was rather fond of that result. And didn't didn't you didn't you also uh, spoil Triple Eight's <laughs> clean sweep right at the end of the year as well? That, that was a bit of a personal satisfaction. I saw. Um, uh, the Vauxhall team, Triple Eight, on the grid on the final race of the weekend, sorry, the final race weekend of the season, the 2001 season. And they had the three cars or possibly four cars lined up in the grid. And they had, I can't remember, it must have been 24 trophies or however many races would have been in that season lined up on the grid. And I thought, that's rather presumptuous. Okay, they've been the dominant car. They won all the races so far. And um, so they took all these sort of press shots, which they were going to use the following Monday and possibly the national newspapers. Um, well, of course, as that weekend, unf- sorry, that day unfolded, um, I mean, our car was quite good, but it, it was largely un- undeveloped. And the weather turned against, um, well, in, in the first race uh, of the Sunday, the, it had the race had started dry. Um, Warren Hughes was in front of me, and then suddenly it started raining. And um, so Warren, because he was ahead of me, had first call about you know taking uh, changing tires. And Warren, I, I do remember Warren was rather hesitant, but um, finally decided he was going to come in for for wet tires, as everyone else did. And I thought. Well, this could be a chance here because uh, uh, there weren't centre-lock wheels. So you had like four or five wheel nuts, I can't remember. So it was going to take a while to change all the wheels on the car. And in fact, um, the time it took to change wheels on the cars meant that I put the entire field a lap down. Uh, Albeit I was on slicks and it was raining quite heavily at this stage. But I managed to keep ahead and then Jason Plato caught me as uh, somebody, uh, I think it could have been Richard Kay, went off into the gravel at uh, Paddock Hill Bend. And, of course, that immediately called out a red flag. So although Jason Plato passed me, the result was declared on the previous lap, so I won by two-tenths of a second. I bet um, Ian Harrison was furious. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we should uh, say, because that car was undeveloped, because you only did the part the last three rounds, I think, of, yes. the, of the season with, with the MG with uh, West Surrey Racing. So, uh, so coming in... Uh, coming in late but I guess good at least to have kind of transcended two eras of, of the BTCC because you carried on as a regular until 2004 and a, a race winning force before uh, yes obviously it became very financially difficult for uh, we, we the were, teams there one of the issues that the MG had was it had the V6 engine which was obviously quite a hefty block in front of the front axle the first two seasons were run on BF Goodrich which was a Michelin tyre and I always say that Michelin, in the in the touring car era, made the best tyres, in my experience. So um, the Michelins, or the BF Goodridges, could carry the extra weight of the V6 um, block. But then, I think in 2003, uh, they changed to Dunlop tyres. And I remember pre-season testing, we were testing at Albacete. 
and I can understand why we kept sort of stripping front tires. I mean, the, the, the rubber would just literally shred off the canvas. And it was just the Dunlop at that stage, their tire wasn't able to carry that extra weight because all the other cars had four-cylinder engines, which were considerably lighter. Uh, so it was in 04 that we decided to change back to the four-cylinder engine, which we'd been told, I think it originally started life as a 1400cc engine. And it was uh, we'd been told by MG that it, it was would be impossible to make that engine into a two-litre block. But then we gave the, the well, Dick Bennett's then gave the uh, project to um, John Judd, and he managed to just about, you know, open it up to a two-litre engine, and then the car handled a, a lot better after that, so on the Dunlop tyres. And, and just trying to sort of wind back a bit on uh, what led into your touring car career. Obviously, there's all sorts of directions you can go in your career, but that, that seemed to come about through you finding a way to Japan. Yeah. That seems to have been quite an important decision in your career to to go out there in terms of establishing yourself as a professional driver, I guess? Mm. Uh, we didn't know it at the time, but uh, Japan was proved to be a very uh, significant um, sort of move for a number of well now well-known drivers. So um, after we finished third at Le Mans in a Japanese Porsche 962, I was invited by that team to race uh, a Group C in Japan with the likes of Derek Bell as a teammate and Tiffany Dell. I mean, at that time, and then I moved into Formula 3. I won the Japanese Formula 3 championship against Jacques Villeneuve, who finished second, and Tom Christensen, I think, was third. Um, but at that time, there were a lot of, who turned out later, to be really significant drivers, people like Eddie Irvine, Franz and Roland Ratzenberger, uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, um, of course, Jacques Villeneuve, Tom Christensen. We're all racing in Japan, and I, I think the Japanese hadn't sort of fully worked out that, of course, most racing drivers pay to race cars. So we're all being paid as professional drivers. Uh, and, you know, I went on to race uh, former 3000, um, uh, Japanese Group C, uh, Japanese GT racing, and then I moved over to the Japanese Touring Car Championship, Super Touring Championship, uh, for HKS. And that, that's when I came to the notice of the big manufacturers because we were beating them, uh, the likes of Honda, Nissan. And um, at the end of the uh, 1995 season, I was, I was approached by Nissan. And, and they said, look, we're, we're going to start racing in Germany. Um, not start racing. It was, it's a very sad story, but um, you know, an opening uh, uh, became available at Nissan because of Keith O'Dor and what happened at um, it, it, was it Avis? Yeah, it was Avis. He lost his yeah. life. Yeah. Um, and so they approached me and said, "Would I like to drive for Nissan?" Because the ultimate goal is to come back to the British Touring Car Championship. And then I, I saw that as a very significant uh, opportunity. Uh, it's interesting, you mentioned beating Jack Villeneuve um, in F3. Obviously, five years later, he was uh, he was Formula One world champion. Uh, you were a slightly older driver at that at that time. I think you would have been in your... I, I was in my 30s, well, 35. Uh, by the time you, time you beat him. Is that one of those things you look at and sometimes say to people, yeah, I beat Jack Villeneuve in, in Formula 3. I could have been world champion. Well, uh, you know, I could wind the clock back even further um, because I was teammates with Damon Hill in course, Formula yeah. 4 2000. Um, and I'm, you know, I was at the front winning races, 
to be fair to Damon, he'd just come out of motorcycles, sort of fairly brief experience racing motorcycles, and it was his first season in, in uh, racing cars. Um, and he, he was sort of floundering around at the back. But, um, you know, the, the passage of time, and he, he turned out to be a great Formula One world champion. Um, it, you know, motor racing is like a pyramid when it comes to Formula One. I mean, in any given year, there's only a handful of drivers who have opportunities to race Formula One. You know, 22, 24 drivers, uh, and there's 6 billion people on the planet. So if you crunch the mass on that, it's pretty <laughs> – you've got, you've got to have a good deal of luck and a, and a fat wallet. Uh, I suppose the other uh, – ultimately, um, around that time, I'd been having conversations with Eddie um, Jordan – about joining his team in Formula One, and I've got a letter. Um, I've got a letter which I've actually framed and hung on my toilet uh, wall because it's the one place in the house, my house in Oxford, that people stand still uh, for long enough to read a, a letter like that. And it basically says, well, "We think Anthony's a fantastic driver. You know, subject to the right sponsorship uh, arrangements, um, um, he can drive for us." And the letter was dated December 1990. Um, well, a few weeks before, I was potentially um, about to sign a, a contract, which could have seen me racing Formula One the following year. Uh, the, the Japanese sponsor I had teed up went bust. Um, and, well, ultimately, Bertrand Gasher, but Schumacher the following year, uh, got to drive that car. And, uh, well, the rest is history. Yeah, cool. It was a good, good car the night you won, Jordan, wasn't it? <clears throat> Probably had you been able to get that drive rather than gas show I imagine there may never have been an opening for Schumacher because I, <laughs> I imagine your conduct around taxis is uh, <laughs> yes more um, sensible. that's the great thing about looking back but I I've thoroughly enjoyed my career and I still am enjoying you know particularly with my links with Goodwood and, and as a house captain and I get to drive some fantastic cars and of course I, I get to do articles for autosport which is great fun too yeah, when the opportunities just come along, we, uh, we do try. I mean, there's one car actually, because um, you uh, very kindly picked out your three best racing cars for, for a motorsport news piece a couple of years ago. We've talked about the Nissan Super Tour and actually the Porsche 962 was on there as well. But your third one was the MG Lola EX257, which was an interesting sort of baby baby prototype, which was, uh, we've talked about this before, um, you know, taken on, you know, could take on the Audi R8 in the right in the right scenario is that is that something you look look back on fondly uh, as a car or missed opportunity because obviously it wasn't as reliable as perhaps um it needed to be yeah the um there was a bit of politics going around at the time between lola and um mg rover um it sort of surrounded the intellectual property rights about who owned the rights to the um you know the intellectual property of the design of the car and I believe there was a lot of money wasted on legal fees and stuff. I mean, I saw that as uh, our testing budget. So ultimately, we hardly did any testing whatsoever. But but the basis of the car was extremely good. Uh, you know, if I've driven Lola cars before, of course, um, um, in Japan, the Lola F3000, they, they make great handling cars and very competitive cars. And there was a sort of quirk in the regulations to do uh, at Le Mans around that time where you could run an LMP2 effectively, an LMP675, but on the power-to-weight ratio, it was as 
quick as um, uh, an LMP 900. Because it was 675 for 675 kilos, wasn't it, against yeah. the 900 kilos? So great power to weight ratio, fantastic on the brakes, um, uh, good acceleration off the slow corners, which meant um, the final time I drove that car was at Le Mans. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. I was on track and Tom Christensen came out of the pits in his car in the Audi um, some hundreds of meters ahead, but I managed to catch him up and then be a pain in the arse to him coming through Arnage and stuff. Um, the, the Audi was probably about five or six miles an hour quicker on, on the Mulsan straight because of the extra power. But we were better on the brakes and better on the acceleration in the slower stuff. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed that stint. And at that stage, we'd actually managed to split the works Audis and we were running in third place overall. Then I think Warren got into the car. I mean, I'd said to the guys before the race, I said, look, we could drive around at five miles an hour. The car's still going to break down. So let's put our foot down and just, you know, give it death give out it there. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, created a bit of story through the race. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that, that was one of the memorable races. And that chassis actually went on to be successful in America and it formed the basis of later Lola's I think that they did win LMP2 and all yes. so it was it was it was as you say it was it was right to begin with it just didn't have all the ingredients when when it needed them at that point yeah and they're very successful in America with Dyson and James Weaver and stuff and they, they were winning outright yeah beat the Audi R10 I think mm. a couple of times I mean it, it, it was a fantastic car a typical Lola you know a real thoroughbred racer just a shame at at, at that stage and MG you know didn't develop the car because you know if you're going to race at Le Mans you should at least try and make the car reliable because I mean uh, without reliability there's no point in going to well of course with LMP2 for a while what 675 became LMP2 the cars were incredibly unreliable weren't they mm. and the, and this was almost the last the it, last it was, man a, it standing, was the last man standing was class here at times yeah so and then years, I think it? it probably changed a bit when Porsche came in the RS Spider that sort of lifted the whole the whole category, I think, and subsequently, I think now the LMP2 cars are driven, you know, flat out for the whole time and, and are very reliable. But yeah, there was that. And they period. got a second place, didn't they? Yeah, second place a couple of years ago. Yes, yeah, when they were only, yeah, they had to be reeled in by the sole remaining hybrid Porsche. I think actually, well, you mentioned the uh, the other car, the Porsche 962. I think you were the last driver to win an international race in the 962 Porsche. Yes, in 1994 at uh, Fuji. Yeah, 1994, a quirk of the Japanese GT regulations allowed us to enter a modified 964 Group C car. And uh, it was actually a remarkably easy win because I was racing against Nissan Skylines and stuff. And Porsche That's a great GT2s. stat. I didn't know that was the last. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's, it's on YouTube. It's, uh, I didn't even know that myself. Yeah, that, 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 that was a really interesting period. Um, racing for Taisan. Ricky Chiba in Japan in um, well the Japanese GT Championship and largely our, our sort of speed and success with Tyson uh, ultimately caused the regulations to be changed so that privateers couldn't beat uh, the Japanese manufacturers because we were winning races in Porsche um, uh, 993 GT2s um, the 964 Group C car and the Ferrari F40s and I can't remember, I, I may have won a race at uh, Suzuka in a Ferrari F40. I've certainly done very well. 
And the next time I turned up at the boss's house in Tokyo, he took me down to uh, like a sort of um, exhibition area in the basement of his, uh, I mean, this is prime real estate in the center of Tokyo. And he had this big basement, like an iceberg development, where he displayed all his uh, important cars and, and drivers' crash helmets, race suits. I remember Will High, for example, Kenny Atchison's crash helmet being on display. And we were having a glass of champagne at this bar and sort of admiring his collection of cars. And he said, oh, by the way, have a look uh, on the ceiling. And I looked up and immediately above the bar was this F40 screwed to the ceiling. Um, I've got a photograph of it somewhere. And uh, I was horrified. He said, oh, read sound, don't worry. Uh, I have two more F40s. And uh, they were quite valuable then. Not as valuable as they are now. Sounds like a good team, Boston. Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, fantastic. He was a great guy to race for. And a lot of well-known drivers, like Will Hoy, Kenny Atchison, um, drove um, for Ricky during that period. I have a question about the 1990 Le Mans, because that was the first year they had the chicanes and the Mulsanne. It was your first Le Mans as well, wasn't it? Yes. So, um, and some of the Porsche teams ran with, I think Yost ran with the long tail. Uh, and but you had the shorter tail, the same as as the Larari Brun car. Was that a was that a choice that you guys made, or you know, to it was go a choice because it was a choice, and it was um, it was an, a well educated choice because they came with both um, sets of bodywork, the short tail and the long tail, and we tested both during the qualifying sessions. I was convinced the short tail was going to be better. I mean, I came to the race with a fresh set of eyes. I'd never raced on, on the long Mulsanne straight. Everyone just assumed, even though there was a couple of extra chicanes on the straight, that you needed a long tail. But, you know, with the significant extra work the car had to do and the tyres had to deal with in, in braking from high speeds to the fairly tight chicanes, it meant that our car wasn't as quick on the straight, but it, it looked after the, the tyres so much better. Um, and ultimately, and as, as the, the stints unfolded, our car just started to move up through the field. And it was definitely the right choice. I, I remember having quite a heated discussion with Tiff on the top of this open-air double-deck bus that the team somehow seemed to have as hospitality. Uh, and we had quite a, a strong discussion backwards and forwards. But I was adamant. I said, it's got to be the short tail. I mean, why they listened to me, I have no idea. Um, because, you know, I, I, this was, I think, only my fourth race in a Group C car. And the previous fastest car I'd, I'd driven was probably a Formula form 3 car. Well, it definitely proved to be correct because yep. um, the Larari Perea car was going to split the jackets, wasn't it, until about 15 minutes from the end. And that had the short tail on it. And yes. you got on the podium and I think you beat the, I think, you beat the Oast, the Oast, which is a semi, almost a semi-works car, wasn't it, effectively? Well, it was with a the long it, tail. It, it, the Autosport, um, in conjunction with Radio Le Mans, did a great um, uh, VHS tape. I don't know if they've converted it over to DVD, but that's well worth watching because it was a great race. I mean, in terms of the number of manufacturers that could possibly... It was pretty wide open. Nobody really sh was sure who was going to come out on top because you had Nissan, Toyota, Jaguar, Porsche, um, Mazda, uh, uh, you know, until a significant distance into the race, nobody was quite sure who was going to win it. Um, so it was wide open. And it was well, one of the last great Le Mans races for Group C cars. 
Yeah, so it started was, to die after that, didn't it? Yeah. One, one more year, 91 was good, and then it sort of started to drop away a bit. So I don't know if you've seen that, that VHS tape. I probably did as a kid, if I'm honest, but yeah. I haven't seen it for a while. I have to dig it out. We've certainly got uh, plenty of Le Mans on motorsport TV, haven't we? I'm sure the 90 races yeah. is on yeah, motorsport so. TV, if anyone wants to check that out. Uh, but but Le, Mans, Le Mans is a strange one, because you only did it half a dozen times. Is that a race you look back on and wish you'd done more? Um, yeah, if it was in the right car, I w- I'd love to have done more. Um, I, I know Nicholas Manassian is a good friend of mine, and, and we race classic cars together. Uh, and it's one of his great regrets. I think he finished second with Persia, but never won it. And I finished on the podium, and I'd still had dreams of, of you know winning the race. I mean, it'd be just the fantastic thing to do, especially to get your handprints in the pavements in Le Mans Town Centre, which is what the drivers do now for the, win the race. Um, but you, you've, it's these days it's a manufacturer's race and you've got to be with one of the top teams because it's all changed a bit now because Porsche pulled out Audi and the sort of... Um, constant threat of Formula E and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we're, we really are moving into a new era of motorsport, hybrid and uh, Formula E and all that sort of stuff. And the manufacturers, well, everyone seems to be leaning that way. So, you know, Le Mans going to be a different challenge going forward in the future. Well, that's why they're looking at these hypercars, aren't they, that are going to have some sort of hybrid element but will be a lot, hopefully a lot cheaper to run than the cause some of the budgets that have been talked about in LMP1 over the last few years have been sort of eye-watering really so form, almost from line levels yeah absolutely so um, it'd be interesting to see how that, that pans out over the next the next few years but um, yeah Tom Christensen rather hogged it didn't he for a while so yes because yeah, <laughs> yes, to, Tom and I have, have a lot of history together in terms of we raced Formula 3 together and then Japanese GT um F3000, I think, at the same time. Then British touring cars. and um, But, of course, he was much younger than me. So, but, you know, having sort of lived in the same village, Gotemba, and hung out together and all that sort of stuff. Um, it, it, I mean, what he's done is, is incredible. Um, like the sort of Michael Schumacher of sports cars, in, in, in a sense. And that's a hell of a result, nine wins. Well, he's not I haven't even raced there car. nine times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that nine is an impossible amount. Really. Yep. You, sh- you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to win it so many times, really. But, yeah. Extraordinary. Should we wind back to the very beginning? Yeah, of, of let's your, have a look at that. your racing career and, and how, you, how you got going on, if, uh, how you got started, if you can uh, if you remember, remember back that far a long, a long time ago. So why, why did you start racing? How did it, how did it start to get serious? Well, it's it's kind of interesting because I, I didn't come from a motor racing dynasty. And my father had a sort of passing interest in motorsport, watched a bit of F1 when it was on television during the 60s. Um, I do remember because he, he had Hillman Hunters and then suddenly he uh, started buying Ford Cortinas. And I said, why have you done that? Uh, well, apparently it was after the 1966 Le Mans when Ford finished one, two, three. Uh, so, you know, motor racing does sell cars. So there was a b- bit of interest on, on that side. And then uh, when I went to Loretto School, uh, one of the significant old boys was Jim Clark. So across the aisle in the school chapel, when I should have been paying attention to the headmaster's um, sermon, I could see this big plaque stuck in the wall. Uh, 
in amongst all the war heroes from the First World War, the Second World War, but this plaque to Jim Clark's two times winning the F1 championship took my interest. Plus, my father had a good friend called Norman Barclay, and um, I used to hear stories as a young boy over dinner parties. Norman Barclay, Keith Schellenberg doing the, the London to Sydney in an eight-litre Bentley. And drive the mind boggles, that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, well, this, you know, this sounds a lot more interesting than becoming an accountant, which was the sort of family business. Norman and Keith Schellenberg, Keith Schellenberg owned an island on the west coast of Scotland called Egg. So he was a bit of a character, to say the least. Um, they were driving through, um, in, in the London to Sydney, they were driving through Turkey and, and up some sort of mountain pass, and the weight of the car caused the road to subside underneath them, and they rolled down into a gully, and they were promptly captured by Turkish bandits. And, and there was a um, prince with, um, in a castle up on top of a hill, and he dispatched his own private army to chase off the brigands. And the, the car was recovered to the castle grounds um, uh, that evening, and they were wined and dined, and the car was sort of restored. It wasn't badly damaged. But the, you know the the castle staff polished the car, so the following morning they were able to sort of get into this restored car and carry on racing. They didn't quite make it to to um, Sydney. I, th I think they got as far as India. But uh, you know, stories like that made a big impression on me. So gradually, you know, with the Loretto connection and Jim Clark, I was thinking I'd love to be a racing driver. The, the only problem was, you know, I wasn't what I would call a member of the Lucky Sperm Club in terms of my father being a multi-millionaire. So I was going to always have to find ways of making the money to, um, to uh, achieve my dream. I guess at that time, at least, it was feasible. So it was Formula Ford you started on, wasn't it? Yes, Formula Ford. I mean, the big thing, and I've got to thank Jim Russell and the Jim Russell Racing School. They had this uh, great scholarship at the time. So I went and did the... Um, seven-day course or whatever it was at, at the Jim Russell School at Snetterton. And at the end of that year, 1977, I entered the scholarship, the Jim Russell International Racing Drivers School International Scholarship. And I, there were two prizes. There was a first prize for the international student, best student, and there was a first prize for the British student. And I won the British prize, which meant I got a season of, you know, um, paid for, uh, uh, in the Jim Russell team, racing in the SO Formula Ford Championship, and that was a great so that, time. A great time for Formula Ford as well. That, that oh, period, late seventies and then the first part of the eighties. That was absolutely awesome. Um, now, where do you look for your sort of next uh, future world champions? Well, of course, it was relatively easy. Uh, you know, a lot of the F1 team managers used to perhaps do a bit of talent spotting. I certainly seem to remember Colin Chapman being, being down at Brands Hatch during the the Formula Ford Festival one year. Um, you know, talent spotting for future Grand Prix drivers. Um, everyone did Formula Ford if they were serious about making a career in motor racing. Well, it was a very clear ladder then, wasn't it? That mm. was that was the first step for pretty much everyone, whereas now it's perhaps not quite as clear. The FI is trying to sort that. But yeah, you'd have come up against the best new guys pretty much Terry, every, every week. Terry Butson and people like that at that time, I seem to remember, knocking around and um, out in Senna, of course. Um, Damon Hill uh, it was a great and easier and more affordable way to go motor racing compared to how much it must cost the new guys now I mean you have to be seriously loaded um, I'm sure you've heard the figures being bandied around 
for the various different categories on the approach to Formula One. Yeah, it's it's become a little bit out of control now, unfortunately. It's certainly out of reach for, for so many people, which is a shame because people can't get started that way anymore. Yeah, it's... Um life evolves and changes and and um, what I have noticed is the colossal individual wealth globally that people have compared to when I started racing I mean you'd see people like Bernard Devaney and Michael Rowe turning up with a or Derek Daly turning up with a couple of um, former Fords stacked one on top of the other on a pickup truck these guys went on to do great things and um I mean, you can't go racing like that now. But there seems to be no shortage of really quick drivers that have a lot of funding behind them. Um, uh, and it's the depth of... I mean, I, th I think, in the, you know, when Ayrton Senna won the Formula Ford Championship in 81, there was a recession on. So there weren't that many people in the big races um, during that period um, that were sort of significant potential winners. And now, of course the depth and the competitiveness and, and it, also uh, technology has changed everything especially with data logging uh, and uh, that, that's been a game changer because the, the only data you had is um, you know you might be racing at Snetterton and your you'd ask your teammate you know are you taking Russell Corner flat out and he might say yes <laughs> and then you try and take it flat and you realise that's impossible uh, and probably have a big shunt. Even more impossible these days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it meant the gap between the really quick drivers and, and the not so quick was, I think, was bigger simply because there was no data. Now it's easy. You know, it's relatively. It's easier. Well, that was the that was the one of the things that annoyed Lewis Hamilton about Nico Rosberg, wasn't it? Is that Nico is intelligent enough to be able to see the data. If he was half a tenth, half a second off, you know, FP one at a new circuit, chances are, having looked at the data, he'd be one tenth off by FP two or something. And so it does it closes everything up. But the data coming along, did you see that as a kind of good challenge? Something nice to have because you've got quite an engineering. Mind? Did you see that as another tool that you would, you'd quite like to to use? Um, yeah, absolutely. It's especially when it came to the technical side of things. I mean, of, of course, uh, I found it useful uh, in a say touring cars in qualifying. Um, we didn't have laptops as such or, or iPads, but the race engineer would stick a, a printout. Up until that point, your best lap compared to your teammate, and you could see, oh yes, you know, maybe Ricard's breaking later than me you know for the hairpin or whatever uh so that was very useful but I, I what i really enjoyed was the technical side of things for example because touring super touring car was as we've already discussed very sophisticated particularly when it came to aerodynamics and i used to love um the testing that we might do on a thursday evening before the next big race with ray malik we'd be at uh, millbrook and we'd run some new sort of aero tweaks in the car and you could really you could see the extra kilograms of downforce that these new bits would develop uh, because you'd see by the load sensors um, you know how much extra downforce and you'd then apply those things for the next race and you'd see the the physical um, benefit of running those extra bits which might get you um, in a couple of extra tenths of a second um, so that that sort of stuff I, I found really interesting 
And of course, it's important now when you've been because you've done a lot of GT racing on and off as well. Quite sometimes with younger co-drivers, so that must be a, a useful tool for you to help get them up to speed as well if they're you know, perhaps a bit inexperienced in a particular car. Yeah, I mean, not only in modern motorsport, but also in in, in uh, the classic racing scene. I, lo- I love working with owners and data and, and improving their driving. But sometimes, you know, you can learn from driving with a, a so-called amateur driver. They might be doing one particular corner better than you are. So if you stitch together the best bits and you can apply it to both drivers, you've got a more competitive package. One of the things that does stand out is you are still doing all this. You still have great enthusiasm for it. There's plenty who have been around motorsport for, well, even less time than you who have, have lost interest. So why why are you still going? Why are you still driving cars? Because it's not just that, that, that that's what you do, is it? You know, you, there's, there's real enthusiasm there. And from what I hear about, you know, getting stuck in when you're doing the, the stock catch, you know, needing to get the car, we weren't just sort of, jumping in the car when it was ready you were getting involved 750 involved trophy when you were actually fixing the car climbing underneath it at Anglesey yeah <laughs> yeah no, the, um, that, it, well first of all I just love driving racing cars and I'm still quick compared to the other sort of youngsters I love the challenges of motor racing so talking about the race at Anglesey in the 750 motor um, club cars a valve had pulled through the, one of the collets on, on the spring, so you know it was firing on sort of four, uh, three cylinders instead of four. And the guys said, well, we, we don't have one of those things for releasing. It's a spring clamp for releasing the valve. I said, no, no, we can do this. So we, we took the head off, and I just got a ring spanner and used that as a sort of spring compressing tool with a spacer under the valve. And we managed to change uh, the valve collets and go out and win the next race. We'd got into the collecting area literally with seconds to spare. And uh, I think I was second on the grid, but won the race. So um, I love all of that. It's sort of, you know, it's my passion in life. And uh, it's a raison d'etre, you know. Well, I don't also, want to retire from this business. <laughs> what, what am I going to do? <laughs> and also, we should say, these are, you know, compared to the things you've done in your career, these are much lower level Yes, things, and I imagine it'd be very easy just to sort of say, "Oh, well, I finished third at Le Mans, and I've raced Super Tourers. Why, why would you be interested in that?" But that's that's the the thing that comes over the the, the enthusiasm for for the, for these cars. Yes, yeah, any sniff of picking up a trophy and winning, because you know you come into these um, so-called club racing series, uh, especially it's actually very difficult to win because. Um, these guys, the teams and, and the top drivers, uh, you know, they really know how the cars work. So to come in and beat them at their own game is, is not easy. It's, it really is a challenge. And especially, and I, I imagine, every, everyone you come across wants to beat you as well because yeah. you're a, a driver of some note. Uh, and, and, and they seem to love it too because it, it hopefully helps lift the profile of the series. And they like to sort of um, measure their speed against an established, so-called established driver. I should say, I don't want to focus too much on age, but you have been doing this for, for a long time. I mean, do you feel any any difference to when you were driving 20, 30 years ago? Do you notice any any deterioration or anything, or is it just exactly the same? I'm, I'm probably not as fit as I, I certainly used to be, because, I mean, driving for the big manufacturers, you usually got a personal trainer to work with sort of three or four times a week. I don't focus so much on fitness. Um, uh, perhaps... Uh, walk down to the, to the local pub these days as opposed to going to the gym. What I have recognised is that I'd need a car to um, uh, suit my driving style. And my style is a little different from a lot of drivers. So 
if I get into a car that's not set up to my taste, I can look pretty ordinary. So what, how would you describe the style? My, my style is more old school. So I, I like a, a really secure rear end and a touch of understeer. Whereas a lot of young drivers now like a car that's on its nose for some reason, which I always think is a terribly bad idea, especially if you're racing at Le Mans, because you don't want to be coming through the Porsche curves in a Ferrari or something in the middle of the night and hit some oil at 130 miles an hour, because the car's just going to swap some end, you know, swap ends if it's on its nose, and of course it's not great for the rear tire wear. Um, but certainly for sprint racing, a lot of people um, uh, like that sort of car on the edge. That doesn't really suit my style. If I can get the car the way I want it, I'm not only as quick as the young drivers, I'm actually quicker sometimes. So um, my, my style, I guess, is old school. Um, you know, more of a solid rear end, touch of understeer. Um, but I, I can drive a car very quickly with that sort of balance. One thing I should say is you had a very long, you've had a very long professional career. So what sort of point were you actually earning properly as a racing driver? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't earn any money racing until that Le Mans race in 1990. That's around 12,000 quid, you know. That was a nice paycheck um, for somebody that was working at racing schools, you know, during the week to make ends meet. Um, and it, it took off from there. And, of course, the, the salaries were very good in Japan. I mean, the, the pioneers had sort of set up the motor racing scene, people like A.L., Jeff Lees, Tiffany Dell, and established a sort of, um, there was a level of fees for depending on which category uh, you were racing in. And at one stage in Japan, I had four contracts in one year and all being paid. And uh, then came, came back to Britain at the right time for super touring. But then I earned very well for somebody that wasn't racing in F1. Um, and I think, in fact, Frank Williams complained at the time Alan Menyon and myself signed the first year of the contract with Ford that he wouldn't even pay his F1 drivers that much. So, I, you know, I've been very fortunate and, and now I can race more for fun because it's difficult to, to earn a living out of racing classic racing cars. Some people will pay, uh, others refuse to pay. Um, usually the very wealthy owners refuse to pay. That's why they're wealthy, you see. <laughs> but, <laughs> There's a trick Yeah, they expect you to look after a Ferrari, you know, 250 short wheelbase and not bend it, uh, which, of course, it comes with some considerable experience as a, a, as a, a long-term professional driver. I mean, you, you wouldn't want to put a sort of Formula, well, um, you know, a junior driver. Apart from the fact that, you know, in, in a Ferrari 250 short wheel base, apart from the fact that they, they probably wouldn't know how to use an H-pattern gearbox. Um, so not only being able to look after a car mechanically, um, but also hopefully keeping it out of the wall, uh, especially with, with something that's so expensive. So, um, so I, I, but I, you know, I, I can, I can, for, for me now, it's, it's just about driving the right cars. Really nice examples. Uh, it, it's not about earning a living. It's nice if you do get paid and get your expenses paid, uh, which is not a guarantee. I wouldn't recommend it as a way of earning a living. I'd stick to the day job. But uh, Is there a car you haven't raced that you'd like to? Is uh, there a historic car that you think, oh, every time you see it, you think, yeah, I'd quite like going that, or is it just anything that comes Well, I've along? driven some fantastic cars, Cobras, uh, Ferraris, but not a GTO, but a short wheelbase, which is a lovely car. Not so competitive these days compared to the um, hot rod um, Cobras that seem to be out there. Because um, you wouldn't really want to modify a, a 
250 short wheelbase too much because that, that would take some of its value. Uh, one of the great cars I've, I've raced is the Mike Hawthorne D-Type Jaguar. And I raced it at the Le Mans Classic a few years ago. Um, won the Sussex Trophy at the Revival. So a Maserati 250S was a great car. Raced that with Mark Devis. I like the sort of late 50s and 60s cars. I'm not so keen on driving ERA pre-war. Oh, you, well, that was another track test for us, wasn't it? You I really enjoyed the experience, but you feel very exposed. No roll hoop. If you've got a tank slapper, you could probably be spat out the cockpit sideways because no seatbelts either. So, uh, yeah, intrepid is the word, <laughs> I think. <laughs> so I'm not so keen on, on driving those, but the 1960s sports cars, the E-Type Jaguar, all that sort, sort of stuff, um, fantastic. We should wrap up now because we've, <laughs> we've covered a, a lot of ground, although we still may be able to scratch the surface. I guess the, the last point is if there's, if there's one year of your career, one point in your career you could just go back to now just to, for enjoyment, what, what's, the, what's the point? Is it the, is it the Premier and Super Touring? Or is there I, a, I, another I, point? I loved the, the Group C period. Um, and I got to drive, looking back on it, with some very well-known drivers like Jürgen Bart, um, uh, Andrew Zulufsson, A.L. Derek Bell, um, you know, I raced with Derek in 1991, and then literally three years later, I, w- I was driving with his uh, son, um, uh, HKS, um, in Japanese touring cars. And uh, I, th- I think, um, if I remember correctly, Justin was signed to drive uh, as my teammate in '95 for HKS and um, I, th- I think that he was supposed to come up with some sponsorship halfway through the year which mysteriously didn't appear and uh, the team simply said to because um, they had to continue running two cars you can't lose face and f- fire a driver halfway through the season so they said to Justin if your father can attend the next race that, that will wipe the, s- the slate clean and because Derek being a hero in Japan he turned up for the next race and everyone was happy. That'd be handy, wouldn't it? If you just get to make your dad make an appearance and then you've got the drive for half that's, a season. That's a brilliant that? variation on the racing dad, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not money, it's just being Derek Bell, isn't it? So uh, my, my time in Japan was fantastic because I raced all these different cars, uh, winning the Japanese Formula 3 championship. And when you look back against the sort of drivers I was up against um, uh, in Japan, it was a great time to be out there. I think it was probably helped by the fact that... Um, Adam Cooper um, came out for a couple of years to Japan, and um, I think he was on British wages. But uh, so he found it quite tough to, um, uh, you know, to survive. It's an expensive place to live, but uh, I think we all helped him out when we could. And uh, but the publicity that he got, the drivers at that time in autosport, made a, a difference to where they went next when they came back, the Eddie Irvines and all that sort of, those people and Jack Villeneuve and Tom Christensen, it, 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 it did have served us very well. Yeah, the, the Japanese period in, um, in, in, was, was great. Um, super touring, just to be a part of what was, um, well, the zenith of touring car racing, really, in the last, um, uh, say, 20, 30 years. Uh, because of the, drivers because of the budgets the manufacturers uh, having an opportunity to drive for the blue oval and it was on bbc one grandstand itv 
which was high profile. Um, that was a great time. And then also racing at Le Mans for, for MG, you know, all, all British uh, team drivers and, of course, a British mark. So we had a lot of support from the uh, crowd that year. So, uh, yeah, lots, lots of good stuff to look back and on. Do you have a list of all the cars you've, you've driven? Or competing because oh, you should because that, that would be like absolutely Titanic, wouldn't it? That that would be a huge list. Uh, yes, well, I, I've got a year, Anthony. Come back <laughs> next year. We'll, we'll go through the yeah, top I'll start, ten of those. I'll start compiling a list. <laughs> I'll keep a notepad next to my bed on my bedside table. Oh, for another one, number ninety-seven. <laughs> well, I imagine that'd be certainly a long list. I and mean, as we've we've only really scratched the surface of what's been a very long and then successful career. So thanks very much for sharing some of your memories and, uh, and what you're doing now with us. And thanks also to Kevin Turner for your, uh, for your input. Well, not at all. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm glad at least there are some people that will listen to me burbling on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> you've got my no, career. no shortage of those. It's, uh, no, it's been very interesting. Uh, please check out autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula One and the world of motorsport. Also our plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists writing about every category from F1 to WRC to IndyCar, NASCAR, the lot. Check out sister title F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and motorsport.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.